Well, we are back in the book of Psalms this morning, and we are starting here in Psalm 51. And I'm excited about this summer as we continue through this sermon series in the book of Psalms. I don't think it'll come to a surprise to some of you out there, and maybe most of you, that I'm not much of a handyman. If you didn't know that, you could just look at my baby soft hands and my clean fingernails. You could probably tell that I'm not much of a handyman. But I do find that kind of work fascinating. In fact, a couple of uh, Christmases ago, my daughter Karis bought me uh, the book Crafted or Handcrafted by Clint Harp. And then a year later, I read Chip Gaines' book, which unfortunately, both of those did not help me become more of a handyman. Uh, So I guess they failed in what they were trying to do there. But I still enjoy the craft of remodeling and restoring things. I also enjoy not only reading about that, but watching. Has anyone here seen the Amazon Prime uh, video series called American Pickers? Has anybody seen that? It's incredible. It's an incredible display of the amount of junk we have as Americans. If you've seen uh, the show, there's two guys named Mike and Frank that drive around this entire country. They look for antiques and collectibles. And they usually end up, in the end, restoring things to their original beauty. And each episode, I am overwhelmed once again with the enormous amount of junk that we have as Americans, but even more so how they can take that junk and make it beautiful. It's quite amazing, the restoration that they bring. Well, here in Psalm 51, we find a restoration project that rivals anything we've ever seen on American Pickers or that we can see uh, in Chip Gaines and Joanne Gaines and their work. Here is one of the best-known penitential psalms. David, the author and the subject of this hymn, writes these words from the lowest and darkest point in his life. In the depths of his guilt, but yet also in the amazing experience of the radical grace of God through forgiveness and restoration. Derek Prince writes, At this point in his life, David had been brought face to face with the reality of his own sinfulness. He glimpsed perhaps for the very first time in his life the true condition of his own heart. He saw the devastation that had been wrought there by sin and realized that there was nothing he could do. He could not adjust. He could not repair. He could not reform. All of that was totally inadequate. And so in agony of soul, David turns to God and asks God to do what he alone could do to create in him a pure heart and restore his joy in God. You see, what we have here in this story is the story of a life transforming mercy of God toward a sinner and toward all of us as sinners. It's for sinners just like you and I, sinners in need of not just minor adjustments, sinners in need not just of slight repairs or alterations, no, sinners in need of complete and full restoration. You see, while the details of this sin that David, that, that leads David to pen these words are grievous and gruesome, the essence of his sin is no different than the wrongs we commit daily. 
And in both cases, David and in ours, sin is never ranked by the gasp and the grimaces it garners. No, each and every sin is grievous and gruesome because it is an exchange of glory, of God's glory. And so as we come to this confession and this cry for mercy from the lips of David this morning, we must not distance ourselves from his experience here. We can't stand back and say about this story and about ourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like David. For friends, his experience of sin, and by God's grace, his experience of forgiveness and restoration are ours as well. You see, David's story is our story. This hymn of moral failure, personal awareness, grief, confession, repentance, and promise, and hope, spells out the experience of each and every one of us. This is the air we breathe. This is the pain we feel. This is the hope that we have in this fallen and broken world. We could say this is our psalm. This is our song. Sam Storms profoundly notes, this psalm is for those who have never come to grips with the horror of human sin and the magnitude of divine grace. It's for those who think some people are too high or too holy to fall. It's for those who think that once they have fallen, they can never get back up again. And for those who think if they have fallen and have actually gotten back up, perhaps even forgiven, they're still useless. From that point on, both to God and the church. Oh, you see, friend, whoever you are and whatever you've done, David's experience will prove that no one is so holy that they cannot fall or so broken that they can't receive forgiveness. You see, if it was David's experience, it can be ours as well. Well, David's story starts one restless afternoon in the spring as David is walking on the roof of his house. But soon that innocent scene explodes in the story of lust, violation, pregnancy, deception, and even murder. 2 Samuel chapter 11 chronicles this dark story, and the truth is, if this was put into a television drama or, or even to a novel, most of us wouldn't watch it or read it. It's gruesome. It's dark. Yet the horrendous details of this vile story unfold in front of us are in the pages of all things the Bible. Have you ever wondered why would God preserve such a horrific story? Why, as we're flipping through the pages of 2 Samuel, would we come upon this? Well, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things took place as an example for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. And so the story of David's sin and this psalm of repentance are meant to instruct us. For here's the thing, if we're to take the time to scan the pages of 2 Samuel, we might be tempted to think that David's biggest enemy was the warring nations around him. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David, the king of Israel, on that restless afternoon carrying actually within himself his most powerful enemy. The enemy that lives not only inside of David, but inside of each of us as well, the enemy called sin. 
Paul Tripp notes, it might be tempting to think that David's greatest victory in his life was his victory over the Philistine giant Goliath. <clears throat> Yet this story and this psalm that goes with it points us to the fact that the greatest victory in David's life was not a victory of war, but a victory of grace. In fact, the greatest victory in David's life, Tripp continues, was not a victory of David's at all, but rather God's victory of grace over the sin that had captivated David's heart. And so this dominant theme here in Psalm 51 is not sin, but grace. That's what dominates this psalm. In fact, there would be no Psalm 51 if the God of steadfast love had not sent the prophet Nathan, who we read of in 2 Samuel 12, to David as an instrument of his restoring grace as he confronts David with his sin and with God's word and David repents. What we find in Psalm 51 is the effect of God's word lovingly and firmly shared by God's servant to the one of God's wayward sheep. And it's here that we learn that the word of God restores our joy as it leads us to true repentance. Let me say that again. That's the big idea this morning. The word of God is what restores our joy as it leads us to true repentance. Here we get a glimpse into how God meets us through his word in our darkest moments. So that in our deepest failures, he might transform us by his love and grace. This psalm is about how we can be brutally honest in our brokenness with God. And yet, because of his steadfast love and mercy, we can stand before him without fear. And so we'll see in this psalm, as we take this personal journey toward repentance and restoration, we'll see how we can know God more fully, know ourselves more accurately, and know his mercy more abundantly through his word. We begin our journey toward repentance and restoration of joy by knowing God more fully. For a truly repentant heart is rooted in this proper understanding of God. And it's clear as we read this psalm that David has come to an accurate and genuine knowledge of who God is. Clearly, David understands God to be an opponent to his sin. For from the very first verse, we hear David's plea to God for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out your transgressions. David knows that God is against sin. In his holiness, God is vehemently opposed to sin. And so David doesn't expect to be forgiven based merely on his sincerity or his spiritual remorse. He knows that a, a simple show of deep regret or a promise to, I'll never do it again, can't gain forgiveness from God. And so he begs for mercy. And like one who has no claim to the favor of which he begs, David calls out for the tender warmth and compassion of God toward him as undeserving as he is. And notice how his appeal is based, not again on how he can do better next time. No, it's based on the covenant-keeping nature of God. That is the stimulus for such mercy. This word here in verse 1, steadfast love, is a covenant word. It's a word from Exodus 20 that God uses in the midst of giving the Ten Commandments to his people as he explains his promise to love 
his people for generations to come. This is the word chesed that can be best described as that I do promise that we hear in a wedding ceremony between a husband and wife. All of his unworthiness, all of the wretchedness of his sin, David knows that God is a God who keeps his word. That he has steadfast love. David knows that he still belongs. Although he has failed through his sin, Yahweh never fails. Rather, God continues his commitment to sinful humans who acknowledge their sin and rely on his mercy. But we also see that not only is God the opponent of sin, he himself is the object of David's sin. For look at verse 4 again. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now what we find here is the essence of David's sin, but also of all of our sin. A revolt against God, or as one author put it, a finger-wagging accusation against God. A finger-wagging accusation against God. Oh, certainly David understands that he has sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, against the family against the nation of Israel, but first and foremost, he says, he has wagged his finger in the face of God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Many of us as parents have observed this kind of realization within our children at some point, or at least hopefully we have, we have seen it. It's that moment when you've told them not to do something, Or you've told them to share that toy with their siblings or that friend that's over, and they don't share it. They grab it out of their hands, and as they grab it, they can hear their friend, they can hear their siblings start to scream and protest, but then they also look to you and you see that little glimmer in their eyes, ever so faintly, where they've realized that they've hurt their sibling or friend, but they've also disobeyed their mommy or their daddy. See, this is what's happened here. David knows he's wronged others, but ultimately he looks up and the weight of the wrong he has done comes crashing down on him as he fully understands that it was ultimately against the word of his father, the great I am, that he has disobeyed, who he has sinned against. You see, friends, the journey toward true repentance begins by knowing God more fully, as both the opponent and the object of our sin. But before we move to our second step on this journey, notice at the end of verse 4 what David says. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's knowledge of God, his mercy and love, and his knowledge of himself, as we'll see next, are rooted in his understanding of God, but specifically God's word. This request for mercy and the confession of sin that follows both spring from David's knowledge of what God has said. You see, his confession is not simply to get things off his chest, as if confession were merely a therapeutic release of sorts. No, his confession is designed to tell everyone that God was in the right all along, that God's judgment was true and just, and that the Almighty is blameless. You see, God's word has led David to this very point. And it's the word of God that leads us as well to take the 
next step in this journey toward repentance and restoration of joy by not only knowing God more fully, but knowing ourselves more accurately. You see, a truly repentant heart is firmly rooted in a proper understanding of God, which most assuredly leads us to a proper understanding of ourselves. And once again, it's clear from the beginning of this psalm that David is, in fact, seeing himself accurately. Oh, as repelling as it might be to look into the mirror of God's word and see the filth and the grime that he's drenched in, David has come to the point of rightly, rightly acknowledging and accepting his wrongs. And his description clearly defines himself as an opponent to God. He isn't passive in his repentance. He didn't accidentally fall into the wrongs he committed. No, he describes them as transgressions. The word here literally means to, to cross a boundary. In other words, this was an act by David of willful, self-assertive defiance of God. He's wagged his finger in God's face as he's crossed the good, right, and perfect boundaries God has set. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And David knew these commands. He had grown up hearing them over and over again. And so it wasn't surprising to him that sleeping with a woman who wasn't his wife was crossing the boundary. He knew that taking another man's life was willful defiance against the creator who made that man in his image. And yet in that moment of temptation, the fruit looked all too appealing to David. The pleasures for a moment captivated his thoughts as he set aside his faithfulness to God's commands. And he knows it. He knows the iniquity. He knows that he not only has crossed the line, but this, that this is his very nature to do so. This word that he used, iniquity, can be best described as the depravity of our nature. Which is why in verse 5, David admits that he was brought forth in iniquity or, or born with. Another translation reads, look, I was guilty of sin from birth. David understands the fact that his sin is a matter of who and what he is and has always been. Not just of our actions, not just of what we do. You see, we don't have to be taught to, to sin, are we? Now, you don't take your little infant and say, okay, here's how you go and sin. Follow daddy and mommy, and I'll show you how to sin. No, we've taught them to do stupid things, but we haven't taught them to sin. It's our nature. This is who we are at our very core, sinners. And this is what David admits here. He admits that it wasn't some freak off one event that just somehow happened. A big oops. You see, he understands the very nature of his heart. And I want you to notice here that David is not saying and he's not doing something here. He's not using that nature as an excuse. He's not using it as a way to minimize his sin and saying, well, I get, that's just who I am. No, this is an honest self-evaluation from David. 
It's not just an awareness of his sin, but a deep sorrow for his sin. He is confessing his rebellion, perversion, and error, and he's owning up to it. I mean, notice how many times in these first five verses, how how many times he says, me or my. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. See, David's not pleading insane here or appealing to outside sources that made him sin. As Dan White, who in 1985 pleaded innocent to the charges against him for killing San Francisco Mayor George Mesconi and Supervisor Harvey Milk did, with his, and get this, David White, said something else made him do it, and it was Twinkies. You thought your, your children's excuses for sin were lame. David White actually made this plea in a courtroom. He said, on the basis of his alleged diminished capacity, which was brought on by certain biochemical reactions to junk food, that he murdered these two individuals because he overdosed on Twinkies. Ridiculous. Isn't it ridiculous how our hearts make excuses for our sins? David isn't blaming Bathsheba. He isn't blaming his wife for not paying attention to him. He's not blaming Uriah for leaving his wife behind. No, he's treating his sin like a man. He says, I've done this. It's my fault. I am wrong. Oh, we can certainly learn from his confession here, can't we? I know I can. I mean, how many times do we blame others for our sin? My kids made me blow up in anger and impatience. My boss makes me so mad. If my husband would have only done what he said he would do, I wouldn't have. How pervasive is shifting the blame in our confessions? David's confession of sin isn't vague. It's not dismissive as yours and mine might often be, it's intensely personal. He says it is his sin. But Dan, you might say, I I haven't done what David did. So I can't really see myself in this passage. Of course, it's okay for David to describe his sin like this and take ownership of it, but, but I haven't sinned like David. Anyone else feel that as you read this psalm and you know the backstory? If I'm honest with you, I'm tempted to pull back from this text and at least think these kind of thoughts. But then I have to ask us and myself, why is it that I find this so hard to accept? Why is it so hard for me to accept the fact that I have sinned against God? Why do we so quickly rise to our own defense in relation to sin? Why are we so devastated when our weaknesses and sin and failures are pointed out. Could it be that we like to believe we are a better class of people? We're better sinners? Or maybe we would rather tell ourselves we're deprived, not depraved. You see, friends, the truth of the matter is we find this all so hard to accept because we hold on to this possibility that we're more righteous than the Bible describes us to be. 
I mean, we read this account and we either place ourselves in the shoes of Bathsheba or Nathan, but not David. I mean, we're the ones that would either be taken advantage of or we're the ones who would set the sinner straight, aren't we? Or are we? You see, it's only when we see ourselves as we truly are, writes John Stott, on the one hand, rebels against God and under the judgment of God, and on the other hand, prisoners of our corrupt nature, that we will come like David to despair of ourselves and cry to God for mercy. It's only when we know God fully, which in turn leads us to knowing ourselves accurately, that we will truly repent of our sin, confess our desperate need, and then finally know his mercy more abundantly. What's obvious throughout this psalm is David's desperate need for cleansing and forgiveness. And so as David explains in verse 6 how God delights in both honesty and humility. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David acknowledges his transparency before God is absolutely necessary in repentance. For you see, only when we lay ourselves fully bare before God will we be open to the wisdom he imparts. Only as we admit our desperate dependence on God and our need for his wisdom in our lives can we experience this true joy and restoration of forgiveness. And notice in verses 7 and 8, how David's plea for cleansing has at its goal, not merely just a clean record, but ultimately joy and gladness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see, David is seeking the only true joy that exists. That is in God's salvation. Oh, he knows his unworthiness. David knows the steadfast love of the Lord and that it never ceases. His mercy will never come to an end. He knows how great is God's faithfulness to his people. He knows his joy will be restored, but only through genuine repentance. See, it's not because of his doing, but all because of God's mercy that brings David to his knees here, crying out for forgiveness for cleanliness and for restoration of his joy. Friends, the same is true for us today. For once again, this is not just David's story. This is our story. This is our plea. This is our song. We are undeserving, unworthy, and totally unable to deal with sin on our own. But the good news is this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love that has said steadfast love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our transgressions, our iniquity and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Jesus, you see, friends, in Jesus Christ, we who have confessed our sins, turning to him in faith and true repentance, are now recipients of God's covenant love and abundant mercy. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. 
And we can rest assured that each time we fail on this journey to our full and final restoration, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the one that's here today who has yet to turn in faith and repentance, let me, let me share this good news with you. This can be your story as well. As you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the full weight of your sin, so that you might not experience eternal separation from him in a place called hell, but you would experience true joy and everlasting life, beginning today and continuing on forever and ever in union and fellowship with him. Friend, you can experience this joy and restoration today. Turn in faith to Jesus. Be cleansed of sin and experience restoration and joy in him. When El Nino's rain bombarded South California one winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore through their house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. The parents began to search throughout the darkness for the child, tromping through the mire that had descended upon the whole neighborhood. They searched, they dug, they called for their child throughout the long night without any results. When morning came, however, a rescuer himself covered in mud came to the parents with mud cake bundle in his arms. And it was the baby, filthy, but alive. And you know what the mother did in that moment? She clung to her child despite the filth. And then and only then, after clinging to her child for some time, did she start to wash away the muck. Friends, that's exactly what grace does. For when the filth of our sins was sweeping us in our helplessness to eternal death, God covered himself in the muck of this world to rescue us. And then embraced us despite our filth and now washes us clean by grace. For here's the thing. God's in the business of restoring broken things. God's in the business of blotting out wrongs and washing clean our filth and grime. Why? So that we might have true and everlasting joy in him.